And um, you will see the... Uh, I think I've got a, uh, another one up there. Okay. I can play with this thing now. You see, I've got my um, keyboard, so... Velma says I'm a control freak, so that may be what it is. Anyway, uh, just keep your Bibles open to the passage that we have looked at because um, I want you to be just checking out on a few things as we go through this. And, um, and I've titled the message today, the, the Gospel Rejected by a Privileged People. And I guess if I asked for a show of hands here this morning, uh, of those who had experienced rejection of some kind or other in their lives, no doubt most would give testimony or could give testimony of that painful ordeal, okay? It could come in many shapes and forms. I remember I used to love my rugby and um, back in my younger day, of course, and I was rising up through the echelons of rugby excellence, but my father was an authoritarian and he said, son, you play rugby to the best of your ability, but there's one rule, you don't play on Sundays. And, uh, yeah, I wasn't very happy about that, but I respected my father, or feared him, one of the two. And, um, and so when opportunity for me to go into the next grade, uh, which I was excelling at the lower one in, I had to say, I cannot commit to play on Sundays, and because of that I was rejected. Woe is me. I felt that. I really, really felt that. And you no doubt can quote different circumstances of your own. But there's one kind of rejection that goes way beyond any other. And that is when you are rejected by someone you love or friends whom you thought were of kindred spirit. Rejection like that is real heart and gut-wrenching stuff. often resulting in deep emotional turmoil. Well, as we come to the section that um, Steve has read from verses 11 through to the end of the chapter, we see that the heart of this section is all about rejection. And the rejection here is a rejection of God and His way of salvation. A rejection by His covenanted people, Israel. But to give some context, the problem is when we just read little sections like this and I've got the advantage of being in it all week and, and ruminating on it and, and where you haven't, we just sort of hear it from one week to the next. Um, the problem with that is we lose some of the context, right? And, um, and it's important we do that. And so we need to understand that in these three chapters, as we've expressed before, chapters 9, 10 and 11, what they do is they answer some very important questions that Paul anticipates would come from Judaism, who accusingly asks them in refuting the message that Paul is bringing. You see, to Judaism, the gospel Paul was proclaiming included salvation for the Gentiles. And they hated that. And so the question Paul anticipated coming from the Jews would say, well, hey, what about us? Has God reneged on his ancient promises to Israel? You know, those promises that were given to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So you mean to say that Abraham, God has reneged on those? Well, Paul anticipates this because this is a real question against God's integrity. And so Paul deals with that. 
He defends God's ancient promises and, um, and in this section. And he does that in chapter 9 and he tells them as we looked at chapter 9 a while back that God's word has not failed. He has not reneged on his promises. a matter of fact, God's blessing for the nation of Israel is still right on track. Okay? But he also said there in chapter 9, but there's one thing you need to understand. Make sure you understand that not all who descend from Israel or from Jacob will be blessed. For example, look at Esau. Remember that? And so he tells them about that. And so Paul goes on to explain that God is like a potter in chapter 9. He's like a potter with his clay who sovereignly chooses whom he wills to show mercy for salvation and blessing. And so the potter takes his clay and he molds it and he decides, no, I don't want that. And so he discards and makes something else. So it's, the potter has sovereign right over who he makes or what he makes for honour as a vessel to be honoured or a vessel to be used for ordinary use. And so Paul likens God to the potter and his sovereignty. But not only that, we're also told in chapter 9 that God will extend his mercy to Gentiles. And the personal requirement for entrance into his blessing is exactly the same way as it has always been. That is through faith. Okay? Now, this is where Judaism came completely unstuck. You see, they had heaps of religion. They had heaps of rules. The problem was their faith was in their law-keeping and in their rules and their own religious practices. Their faith needed to be, Paul was claiming, in the appointed Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what did they do? They stumbled over him. They stumbled over him. Okay? And um, we're told that in verse 32 of chapter 9. Faith in Jesus Christ was the requirement. Okay, I'm going to put that there because that's where we should be. And um, so faith in Jesus Christ was a requirement. But what was Jesus to the Jewish nation generally? He was offensive to the, in them, right? And we have that in verse 32. They stumbled over him. They tripped over him. And, um, and this leads Paul in chapter 10 to take, make some very clear statements. Statements that clarified the only way of being declared righteous by God. Because to the Jews, to be righteous by God or be declared righteous by God or to be saved, whatever tag you want to put on it, to be blessed by God spiritually was to be keeping all the law and to keeping all the, and all the rules. Well, Paul makes some statements in chapter 10 that blows it out of the water. And um, he, he makes a statement that, that included Jews and Gentiles. And we see this in verse 10 of chapter 10. It says, For with their heart... With the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now that's what he says in chapter 10. So as we think about chapter 9, we're going back here, as we think about chapter 9, we must think here is God in sovereign grace choosing sinners for salvation. This is his side of the deal. He sovereignly elects. And also that has really gone into in chapter 8, Remember when we talked about that. But sovereign, but chapter 9 is about God's sovereign grace and choosing sinners for salvation. But when we come to chapter 10, we are dealing with man's responsibility toward God's sovereign grace. 
And, um, and the text before us details how Israel responded to the sovereign grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, their Messiah. This is what chapter 10 does. It tells us how they responded to him. Now, we know that what their response was, what? Right at the beginning of, verse, uh, of chapter 10, we see that they were, they were zealous, yes. But at the same time in their zealousness, they ignorantly pushed the delete button and they rejected the promised Messiah. That's what they did. Actually, it's staggering when we think about that, how in their hard-hearted unbelief, they missed and stumbled over this wonderful revelation from God. They had all the privileges. They had their fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They had the prophets. They had the word of God. It was near them. We can ask, what on earth was wrong with them? How could they be so blind? Well, listen carefully. Though the immediate context, what we're reading today, has Israel in view. Before us is a powerful message that's relevant to each one of us today. Especially, now listen now, especially for those of us who have had the privilege of a Christian upbringing and have a knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The question we need to ask ourselves this morning is how am I responding to the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ? That's the question. Now, please note my continuous sense in that, that question. You see, I, I say it, how am I responding? I didn't say, how did I respond? I ask it that way because there are too many professing Christians who look back and depend, a bit like Israel, they have their faith in an experience of some sort or saying a prayer or raising a hand and they hang on to that for dear life as being their salvation ticket. And yet throughout the years, since that experience or whatever, there has been precious little, if any, evidence of change in their lives. There's been precious little, if any, evidence of the Holy Spirit doing His transforming work in that life. Hence, the question we ask is not how could Israel be so blind and ignorant to miss the point, but how am I responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ? This brings us to our first point as we go through the text. The gospel is offered to all people. And we see this in verse, um, we see this in verse 11 to 13, okay? We see this in verses 11 to 13. And, um, and you can follow along that as we, as we look at it. You know, as I look at those verses, we see an amazing offer and a promise in this one verse. It says this, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. That's a wonderful verse, right? What we see here first is, is the comprehensive scope to all people for the gospel to take root in resulting in salvation. It's comprehensive. Now, this did not go down well with the Jews. Most of them strongly rejected this idea of Gentile inclusion. They considered those in their history, if you brought them up to them, 
and others like it. They considered those in their history, you remember, like Ruth the Moabitess. Remember the story of Ruth? She was a Moabitess. And another one like Rahab the harlot. These are all Gentiles. They considered these ones in their history as exceptions to their present rule that they made. But this was a gospel that Paul preached. God extends his salvation to all, Gentiles included. And this was not some new idea of God's that he just decided to, 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 to change here. No, this was not some new idea. This is why Paul quotes from Isaiah. He teaches of God's consistency here. He goes back to Isaiah. It signifies that God has always been calling Gentiles to salvation. If we want to use the in word, God has always been a missional God. He's always been involved in a mission to the world. In fact, the nation of Israel was raised up by God to be what? It was raised up to by God to be, uh, Exodus um, chapter 16, uh, 19 verse 6 tells us, they were raised up to by God to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, you have priests as representative for the people. Why, why were they raised up priests? To preach salvation in Him alone to the rest of the world. See, Israel was raised up to be a witness, a light to the Gentile nations. Matter of fact, Paul in chapter 1 of this book of Romans in verse 16 clarifies that further and he tells us of God's worldwide mission when he said this in verse 16 of chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Whoever, whosoever has always been God's plan, folks. Has always been God's plan. And we should be so encouraged here this morning with this all-inclusive scope of God's salvation because what it does, it brings a wonderful balance of truth with what has been taught about God's, God's sovereign choice of people in chapter 9, right? You know, if we just had chapter 9, we'd think, oh, wow, let's all be ultra-Calvinists and be totally determinism. It doesn't say that. This brings a wonderful balance. You see, although we struggle in trying to understand with our finite minds how God's sovereign electing grace and man's responsibility to repent and believe, although we, we struggle with how that really works, we can be assured of this one thing, that God's sovereign choice of every sinner to be saved is perfectly consistent with his promise here of whosoever calls of him will be saved. Or whoever calls or believes in him will not be disappointed. Perfectly consistent. In other words, only those whom God has chosen, as we read in chapter 8 and we see in chapter 9, only those whom God has chosen will be those who willingly submit to Jesus Christ in genuine faith. And, only, and whoever willingly submits to Christ in genuine faith are those alone whom God has chosen. How does God do that? I don't know. I don't know. And I don't believe it's up to us to know or to even try and reconcile. We don't know how God works that out. But all we do know from this chapter here is whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, verse 11, and whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved in verse 13. Whoever means exactly that, folks. Whoever. You see, this is about us now. This is about people. This is about man's responsibility to God's sovereign 
electing grace. Perhaps this verse that sums the scope of God's gospel is well-known verse in John 6, 3.16. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This whoever scope means, of course, another thing. It means that man is without excuse, right? Because in God's economy now there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile or Greek as we have here in the text. Why? For the same Lord as we see in the text. For the same Lord is what? He is Lord of all. Not just Lord of the Jews or the Greeks. He's Lord of all. Now this was too much for most of the Jews. As I said before, they hated this. And Paul really laid the same truth on heavy to the Galatian church. Even though they were Christians, they were still hanging on to their old roots a little bit and he had to reprimand them. And even Peter on occasion, he had to reprimand Peter because even though they were saved and, and belonging to the Lord, they were still hanging on to some of their old legalistic ways. And he tells this Galatian church in chapter 3, verse 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But then Paul doesn't stop there. He carries on. And just in case there's still some prideful bubbles in the, in the congregation, he comes in with a knife and he bursts it with this. Telling them that believing Gentiles, along with believing Jews, are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Imagine that. You see, Abraham's offspring are those who believe and have faith in God. Just like Abraham did. Uh, he was declared righteous by God. That was his hallmark. Abraham believed in God. He was declared righteous. That's the plan. That's the recipe. That's, that's how God saves people. Jew or Gentile. We also see in our text that the Lord is abounding in riches here. He's abounding in riches. For who? For all who call upon him. See that? It says, for all who call upon him. For the same Lord is Lord of all, verse 12, abounding in riches for all who call on him. You cannot miss the, the comprehensiveness, the scope here for all people. You cannot ignore it. Now, the idea, you might think, well, what do you mean call upon the Lord? The idea of calling upon the name of the Lord, is a, it comes from the Old Testament. Right back, even in the days of Noah, when men began to call upon the name of the Lord, and probably one of the first expressions times you'll see it, but you see it all the way through, call upon the name of the Lord. And so the idea is sort of pulled through into the New Testament here by Paul, and uh, it's quoted from there, and um, it has the idea. It's not something, oh, I'm in trouble, Lord. Can you help me out of this? I'm in a fix. You know, it hasn't got that idea alone. And um, what does Paul does here is he quotes uh, the prophet Joel, Joel chapter 3, verse 32, actually. And, um, and as I said, it was never used for a mere plea for help. To call upon the name of the Lord always had its roots in a right worship of the one true God. It always had in its roots an adoration and a submission and a praising of God's holiness and his power and his majesty. It had all those things associated with calling upon the name of the Lord. So what call upon the name of the Lord here, it's directly linked to what Paul has just stated in verse 9. You see that? 
What did Paul say in verse 9? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as who? As Lord and believe in your heart. There's the call, folks, right? There's the call. As God sovereignly calls us to himself for salvation, blessing, sinners also must call upon him in ongoing trusting belief. There's the deal. Yeah, here is the, the submissive acknowledging of God's grace, His power, and His majesty in Jesus for Jew and Gentile. You see, if anyone calls or confesses Jesus, Lord, from a believing heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, Jew or Gentile, what does it say? They will be saved. That's an awesome truth, right? That's an awesome truth. What a simple yet profound truth that sets sinners like ourselves free. But there is a condition. There is a condition. You might say, oh, what? You're putting conditions on the gospel? There is a condition. There's another requirement of God's salvation plan for it to be effective. And that brings us to our next point. And, and this point will really challenge us all. Challenge us all. We see that the gospel is preached to a privileged people. We see this in verses 14 to 17. And so what Paul does here in this next section is he asks a series, like he always has been right through, a series of rhetorical questions to further explain the scope of God's saving grace. What does he say in 14? How will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? Verse 15, how will they preach unless they are sent? So what Paul does here, he uses simple logic. He uses simple logic by progressing from one point to the next to establish something. And this is what he established. To establish that only those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what he establishes. And he establishes that only those who believe in him can call upon him. Right? And only those who have heard of him can believe in him. And only those who have a preacher can rightly hear of him. And finally, no preacher can preach the good news unless they're seen of God. That's a challenge. That's a challenge for us. That's the recipe that God has chosen for the gospel, his message of good news to reach the hearts of sinners, Jew or Gentile, to transform them from within. The life-transforming gospel, the power of God and salvation in Paul's day and in ours follows this exact same path. Forget about the dreams or the visions in the night or the lightning bolts. No, no, no. Preachers. And that doesn't mean just people standing up like I am in a pulpit. It means both you and myself, wherever we are, declaring and making known the pure, unadulterated gospel. All the religious experiences, all the spiritual highs, all the human enthusiasm, all the legalistic rule-keeping will never bring true salvation, folks. Even faith in your faith, which is a big thing in this day and age, as long as you've got a faith, no matter what it's in, even faith in your faith, whether it be in the Quran, the Hindu Vedas, religion itself, or anything else, they will and that will never breach the gulf fixed between man's sinfulness and God's righteousness. Never, never, never. 
True faith that saves for eternity. Faith that brings God's declaration of complete righteousness upon any person comes from what? It comes from hearing and by hearing the word of Christ. That's gospel truth, folks. That's the only way of salvation. Yeah, that's dogmatic. And I need to be dogmatic because this is what we call dogmatic theology. Not politically correct in this day and age, but this is what the Scripture says. Now, as I think about that, as I think about faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ, that's got to be one sweet, soul-satisfying message, right? Any bearer of that news has got to be valued in someone special. But it's not the bearer of the news or of the message that makes this person beautiful as we see the word in the text here. It's the message that he or she delivers that makes that person beautiful and special and to be valued. It says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now, if you had a look at my feet, they're not very nice. They're not very beautiful, that's for sure. And, um, but the message I bring, that I can bring, is beyond compare, believe you me. It's beyond compare to those who receive it by faith. Every single one of us as believers, yes, we are God's image bearers, but we are also His message bearers, right? His message bearers. You have the words of eternal life in you and with you. I say in you because you have the Spirit of God, right? So you have the words of eternal life and you can take up the Scriptures and bring this wonderful, sweet, soul-satisfying message to sinners. Because it's only through the Word of God, the Word of Christ, that people can be saved. I don't care how good you are or how eloquent you are, that will not cut it. It's the Word of God. This is why Paul quotes from Isaiah 52. This is a response from those in, 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 uh, in Isaiah's day who, who have heard and responded to the good news of Israel's deliverance from its enemies. And I believe it's in relation to uh, hearing of the uh, deliverance from Babylon, how the people are returning. But it has eschatological, more, so eschatological references because in the coming day, Israel as a nation will sing and celebrate with these words, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. When Christ the Messiah, their appointed Messiah, that they have rejected, will come and news will come and they will believe. But he uses this in this context. And he says, how beautiful upon the mountains, this is what Isaiah says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, that was awesome news to those people who uh, were being held captive and uh, being um, subjugated to their enemies. You see, this was a voice of celebration from those who hear and receive with believing hearts the good news. That's what we do, right? We celebrate God's good news. We've already done that in song this morning as we read the scriptures and talked and sung about our salvation. We celebrate and rejoice in the good news of the gospel that brought news of our sweet release from, from sin and divine wrath and, has, and can make us one with Jesus Christ. Upon believing that message and, and calling upon the name of Jesus as Savior and Lord. You know, if we don't celebrate that, there's something drastically wrong. I wonder if you do that. 
We have opportunity every Sunday collectively, but we have opportunity, of course, every day in our families. And it should be something that characterizes us. Uh, Wow, these people are always celebrating. What are they celebrating? No, no, no. Not because I've just got a new job promotion or or, or, or extra pay rise or I've managed to buy a new house. They are well and worthy teams. But man, the, the high point of our celebration that we've been saved and the good news has come to us and we've been delivered. Sin no longer reigns in our lives. Our chains have been stamped. We're free. We have eternal life. Maybe we should party more over that that kind of thing, right? We're pretty somber, you know. We're pretty somber. Do you have a heart that spills over with gladness? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice, Paul says. Do we have beautiful feet because of the good news that you bring captive sinners? And do we celebrate and rejoice over the gospel news brought to us which has changed our lives forever in Christ Jesus? I ask this, I ask this and emphasize it because, folks, as you know, it's not always the case. Sad to say, as we see in our text, that although many Jews in Isaiah's day heeded the good news, not all heeded. You see that? Verse 16. Paul quotes it here. Verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Not all heeded in Isaiah's day. That is, they did not listen attentively and obediently submit to the message of the good news. My dear people, that is what's so tragic. That is what's so, so tragic. The offer of salvation to all men is not heeded by all men. Did you hear that? As I said before, don't make the mistake of of ultra-Calvinist. Now, you know if you want to tag me, and I don't like being tagged, but if you want to tag me, yes, I'm a Calvinist. But I'm not an ultra-Calvinist. That's another tag. An ultra-Calvinist is one who believes that God determines every single little thing whereby man has absolutely no part to play at all. Don't go down that trail. Don't go down that trail because, look, it's clear here that God's glad tidings must be received through obedient faith of those who hear it. God's unmerited grace, what does it demand? It demands man's obedient faith. Paul refers to this two-sided coin, I call it, in chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. This is what he says, and he's speaking of Jesus. He says, of this book of Romans, he says, Jesus, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ. You see the two-sided coin there? To bring about obedience of faith to those who are the called of Jesus Christ. In other words, those who are obedient to the faith are believers who have been called of Jesus Christ. My dear people, the whole thrust of evangelism is not in the power of clever, slick, persuasive or manipulative devices to bring about confessions by whatever means. It's not that. That kind of evangelism has deceived many and has taken many to hell and will do. The true thrust of evangelism is about faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in which the Holy Spirit uses to convict 
individuals of their sin and their need of a holy God and Savior to deliver them. That's the good news people need to hear. They need to heed and they need to submit to and obey the words of Christ. This brings us to our last section. The gospel is ignored by an obstinate people we see in verses 18 to 21. You know, when confronted with the truth of God's good news, people often begin with a barrage of excuses or reasons for not wanting part of it. They'll either start shuffling or they'll get uncomfortable or they'll change the subject or they'll just come out and tell you uh, of something that happened in their past, therefore they don't believe in God, blah, blah, blah. You know the story. Well, here was no different because Paul again anticipates Israel's excuses and he gives two straight-up examples of what they were going to say. Number one, but I say, Paul supplies their answer, question and answer, Surely they have not all heard, have they? Okay. See, Paul blows this first excuse out of the water, so to speak, in reminding his readers that that not hearing God's declaration, not hearing God's declaration concerning himself is a pathetic no-good excuse. God has graciously declared himself His voice, his words have gone out to all the earth, to the ends of the world. What Paul is doing here, he quoted King David from Psalm 19, by the way. And this is what he writes. The heavens in Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God or declaring the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pour forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. You see, this very same truth Paul has written about in also in chapter 1, verses 18 to 30, at the beginning of this Romans book. He says this, For since creation of the world, His invisible attributes, that's God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. The excuse of having not heard is invalidated for Israel and it is invalid for any today, especially us here this morning. As a matter of fact, we have more revelation, we have more voice, we have more word from God concerning himself and his redemptive plan for the world than Israel ever, ever had. We are more privileged than Israel. And as I say that, we need to understand this, that as Jesus reminded those listening to him when he spoke that parable in Luke 12, he said this, to him has been given much, much more will be required. This leads us to our second excuse. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? The first one, surely they have not heard, but now surely did they not know. You know, when I when I first reading this, it made me think of the excuses that we often hear, or maybe we have coughed them up ourselves when we are caught by a cop for speeding. But sir, I didn't know that I was in a 50k area. Ah, but sir, look, I was just travelling along and um, I didn't realise that I was speeding. You know, the excuses come pretty quick when that happens, right? You know, claiming ignorance, claiming ignorance is never a valid excuse for not knowing and acting upon truth when it's staring you in the face. And that's what Paul anticipates the Jews would fall back on here. So he gets in first and says, no way, that bird will not fly. 
He goes right back to the Old Testament and he quotes one of the heroes, Moses. All day long. He says, all day long. Oh, sorry. Paul, he said, goes back to Moses and he says, don't you remember what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 32? This is what he says. I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation and by a nation without understanding. Will I anger you? He's one of your heroes. You mean to say that even though you know all those texts off by heart, you just skipped over it? But he doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't stop there. He puts the knife in a little further on this not knowing excuse by quoting another one of the heroes, Isaiah. I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. This is what Isaiah wrote. And Paul quotes it here again. In other words, Paul says, your own scriptures that you you revel in and that you pride yourself in have predicted what is now happening before your very eyes. Their own scripture that many of you know off by heart told you about God's blessing of salvation to both Jew and Gentile. See, your problem is not an intellectual one, although it certainly looks like that. So here's the idea of what Paul was saying here. Look at the Gentiles. And I'm contemporizing this, okay? Look at the Gentiles, Paul is saying. They were never theologically savvy. As a matter of fact, they were one sort of a six-pack up top when it came to theology. They were pretty thick. They were a nation without understanding. Okay? But they understood the message of the gospel, of the promised saviour for salvation from the Old Testament. And you know what? Numbers of them have embraced it. Well, if they, who are at the bottom of the class, understood and heed the call of the gospel from the Old Testament, how come you scholars who are at the top of the class, Israel, just do not get it? This is what he's saying here. The point is, folks, this was a being saved and coming to know Jesus Christ is never because of an intellectual problem. Yes, we do need to understand we do need to understand and know the gospel. But Israel had a huge blockage problem on top of that. Okay. And by the way, this blockage problem in God's providence and his sovereignty is using right into this present day to bring about his redemptive purposes, which we're going to look at in more depth in chapter 11. He's using this blockage problem of Israel to bring about his purposes. You see, their, their problem was... In verse 21, and it cites it here. All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. There's a problem. You see, their problem was with the heart. The problem that they had is their, their rebellious will, the disobedience and unbelief of Israel is and was their problem. You see what I mean by man's responsibility? Disobedient and obstinate people, that's a, that's a hard issue, right? That's, a, that's, a, that's a, a will issue. That's a pride issue. It's not something you can poke your finger at and touch. It's, it's a will. It's the, it's the very essence of a person or of a nation. My dear people, the same obstinate heart of disobedient belief can still be our problem today. 
You know the gospel. Be you an unbeliever or a believer. But the question is, the question is, how are you responding to the gospel today? That's the question. Forget about Israel now. We can so easily, like Israel, obstinately go in our own self-driven way, refusing to heed and obey God's call in our lives to follow and live for Him by faith alone. Even as Christians, even as Christians, we can obstinately push and keep pushing the delete button when it comes to submitting and obeying Him and, and being obedient while all the time that we know God's truth in the gospel. But then again, we can yield our wills. We can submit our stubborn hearts, which we all have and are all prone to have, and receive by faith his salvation blessings in the Lord Jesus. How? By faith. Not by just keeping a whole lot more rules or just, okay, I've got, if, I, if I keep more, do more Bible readings or if I, if, if I do this and I do that. Uh, no, 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 it's by faith. All those things are well and good and I believe that they will actually be all part of, of your faith growth. You see, when we are saved by faith and genuine faith, we will grow and be transformed by the Spirit of God as we live in faith. He transforms us from within. And it's only then, and I'm going to quote Bodhi Bokum again, that we can say, today was better than yesterday, and tomorrow will be better than today, as we become more and more like Jesus by faith. May the Lord bless his word amongst us. Thank you.